my usual philosophy on the simulation hypothesis is that the question isn't whether or not we live in a simulation, but whether or not it matters. Now, I, I tend to think that um, the rules for simulation are likely to be self-consistent. You would have physical laws in that simulation that you would expect the simulation to tend to follow, because otherwise it kind of gives away the game. And uh, in our own universe, the rules we observe, whether this is the real universe or not, we probably should be assuming that many of our assumptions about how likely life is to evolve uh, to begin with and to get to intelligence and technology are probably just a lot uh, less probable than we think they are. And I, I don't see us trying to terraform Mars much. You know, terraforming, and people think of it as, oh, we can take this planet and make it livable. This is a process that is inherently destructive. And I mean, seriously, mountain-changing type of uh, procedures that take centuries to take place. Whereas, while it sounds strange, building your own habitats, building giant orbital habitats like an O'Neill cylinder, might turn out to be much cheaper than trying to terraform an equal amount of space. And then, most importantly, you've got the entire planet of Mars, and you have to terraform that entire planet to make it livable. Something like an O'Neill cylinder, it's just an island in space you build and expand or add another one as need requires, and you can perfectly tailor it. You know, you can get the same gravity, the same weather, temperature, lighting, etc., and I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Proton Mail. How many times have you been at a coffee shop and wondered if someone was reading your email? Or how do those ads know about yesterday's conversation? I know I use Gmail, but a lot of times I don't trust them. And for good reason. It's Google. You guys have listened to this show. You get it. Proton Mail is a private email solution that offers end-to-end encryption. That means nobody, not even they, can read your information or sell it to third parties unlike the business models behind some of the bigger players. The team behind Proton is based in Switzerland, home of some of the strongest privacy and neutrality laws in the world. And all their apps are open source and have been independently audited. Plus, they're funded by their users, i.e. they're not accountable to shareholders, they're accountable to you. Here's your call to action. Go to protonmail.com disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S protonmail.com slash disruptors to get 20% off an annual subscription. If you want safe, fast, secure email, something no one else is reading, no one else is selling, and no one else is using to target you or change elections worldwide, then go to protonmail.com slash disruptors for 20% off an annual subscription. And now let's get back to the episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If you're a bit of a nerd, excited about space exploration, interested in the Fermi paradox, or curious about our collective future, this episode is absolutely for you. Star Wars, Star Trek, a galaxy far, far away. We are diving deep into the world of space. Today we have Isaac Arthur from Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, the largest and most successful YouTube channel on futurism. They have over 270,000 subscribers, 20 million views, and a legion of loyal, insightful fans, including his own subreddit. Arthur covers a wide range of futurist and science fiction ideas, including cyborgs, androids, artificial intelligence, the Fermi Paradox, Interstellar War, Dyson Spheres, Megascale Engineering, Quantum Teleportation, and faster than light travel, typically exploring hypothetical scenarios extending out to the distant future. By way of background, Arthur's experience is both as a physicist and a futurist, and he is an incredibly interesting gentleman. Having him on the program today was quite a bit of fun, and we dive into a ton of topics, including the future of interplanetary travel, 
what you didn't know about the Fermi Paradox, how humanity is likely going to evolve as we explore space, the reason we probably won't terraform planets, where we'll live instead, why material science and metamaterials may be the most important technology of this decade, the effects of genetic engineering on society, the two paths to free energy for all, the reason Isaac thinks we're close to a post-scarcity world, why Isaac thinks cybernetics and human enhancement is more likely than gene editing, the reason man-made structures are the habitats of the future, how likely AI is to evolve, and why our education system is failing and how we can fix it. This is a fun one, guys. Without further ado, I give you Isaac Arthur. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. What's your story? I guess you could say I was kind of born and bred for it. Uh, My parents named me Isaac Albert Arthur because they are a fan of uh, Newton and Einstein. So I've pretty much been into science uh, since Carl Sagan's days, way back in the early 80s. It's been a passion of my uh, life. So, And how did you make that into a profession? Now, I mean, you run one of, you run actually probably the largest science and futurist related YouTube channel. How did that happen? Uh, Mostly by accident. I had, uh, I'd been in the army for a while after I got out of grad school. And when I got out, I got involved in local civic governance and administration. And, they, you know, there, there was a lot of work there to be done that you could feel good about, but I wasn't really getting to do the science thing much. So I, uh, I had stayed fairly active on the field, and, and I decided one day to try out something on a PowerPoint presentation. And I just picked a random topic because I wanted to, I was checking to see if something would work. And that was megastructure. It was a horrible episode. I don't want to suggest anyone watch it, but that was kind of the pilot. Some months later, I ended up doing another episode on a different topic, the uh, Fermi Paradox. And then there was another one, and I thought there was need for another one, and then next thing I know, there's a channel. So <laughs> it's just been growing since then. And it's taken off. So wh- why megastructures? Why did you start there? I think in that case, it was really just because I, at the time, had involved in a uh, world-building forum on Facebook, a sci-fi world-building forum. And people were so often focused in, in science fiction when they were writing books on these. This is mostly authors who hang out there uh, on you know this planet or that planet. And I was said, in science fiction, there's so much focus on the planets, but that's probably not the future that we're going to see. We're more likely to build our worlds to live on, you know, same as we don't live in caves, we live in skyscrapers. And uh, I felt that they were really missing the opportunity to explore those. So I figured that would be a good topic to look at because I discussed it with a lot of them here and there, and I just felt like I was often repeating myself. So I said, let's do a video on that. And there was some good artwork out there from uh, Steve Bowers at Orion's Home. And uh, that's pretty much how that started. Then, of course, the other came up in sci-fi time was Alien. So I discussed the Fermi Paradox. And it just kind of rolled out from there. Let's talk about the Fermi Paradox for people that are unfamiliar. Okay, well, the Fermi Paradox uh, is basically the idea that as we moved into the modern era, we saw the universe was this huge place, just mind-bogglingly huge. And it was very old, too. And we knew that the world was much older than we originally thought as well. And people looked out there and said, well, if this place is so big and so old, there's got to be other life. And there's got to be, you know, this is something that's been suggested in the past, but never taken too seriously. When you take a look at the universe and see just how big and old it is, it goes from maybe this happening to this kind of feeling that it absolutely must be happening over and over again. So there should be civilizations out there that are just ancient and been around forever and a day and spread all out. And yet we don't see that. And so this apparent paradox between the size and age of the universe and its apparent absence of intelligent life is what we call the Fermi paradox. And there's so many different reasons for why we could be observing this. The one that I've heard the most interesting would just be the, the actual probability of life occurring. I'd like to, what, what are your thoughts on the different, the different reasons why we haven't heard something? Well, we've got, basically, we usually divide into four camps. We've got variations of the rare earth camp, which is say, we don't see anybody because they, they don't exist. Maybe life isn't that common. Maybe it doesn't get smart very often. 
uh, maybe it's even artificial nature for uh, something like divine intervention or uh, the simulation hypothesis. Then you've got the category that I think most people tend to subscribe to, uh, not myself, though I'm, I'm actually in that first camp, which is that they're all over the place, but we just don't hear them. We, we're missing their signals. Maybe they use fast and light communication, that kind of thing. Third camp is they're all over the place and we just don't believe them when we see them. That, that would typically be things like UFOs landing on the planet or ancient alien astronauts. And of course, we have a fourth category for all the various miscellaneous ones. And um, sci-fi tends to make us think it's number two or number three. That, that they are there and we're either just not missing them or we don't believe them. But I tend to feel the strongest camp is the one that says they aren't there because we were just the first on the scene in, in this region of the universe. And the, the difficulty with that is that we, it seems counterintuitive. This universe is ancient. It's huge. How can we be the first? It seems arrogant. And yet the more you look at the scenarios for how you'd expect alien civilizations to behave, as something we call exclusivity, we say, well, they might be doing this, and that's why we don't see them, but would everybody be doing that? And the more you poke at, the less believable it becomes that all of these guys are doing something that's going to hide them from us. And so we tend to fall into the, to the rare earth or rare civilization camp, which I should add does also include the possibility that we don't see them because they happen regularly enough, but they just kill themselves off with technology. Which is the, which is the Fermi filter. In terms of not wanting us to see them, you could also see very easily a uh, a space league of sorts with rules of don't contact stupidly unintelligent alien civilizations. And that's, that's that would be the you know, prime directive or the zoo hypothesis more generally. The prime directive being a joke on the one from Star Trek. And that's exactly what we mean by exclusivity. You can say that makes sense, but when you think about it, it is so easy to send a radio pulse to, to a planet like ours or just land. And unless they're willing to leave Almanas in place, to just constantly filter these things out, block them, shoot down ships to try to land, then you know you have this, is every civilization going to not only agree to this and agree to this in perpetuity, but actually be willing to enforce this with a degree of effort that would be necessary to essentially quarantine a planet? It's not a case where you can say they're just leaving us alone because they don't want to talk to us. That doesn't really work on inspection. It's the idea that they are actively seeking to keep us quarantined. And that just doesn't work as well when you, when you start kind of poking around at it. When, you, when it comes to human game theory in terms of what we would want to do or in terms of actual possibilities? Well, you can look at it from a game theory perspective, but I, I'd say just in terms of you know, human psychology, we have isolated tribes on this planet that we say are uncontacted and we often point to those. But in point of fact, they all have been contacted. It's just they, they drove us off and we said, we're not going to come back. They do know we exist. They don't really understand what we are, I assume, but they do know of us. And uh, I mean, there might be a tribe or two we've missed, but by and large, these folks do know we exist and we have made attempts to, to contact them. So, and there was, of course, a lot of split thought on whether or not we should do that, but whether or not we believe we should. How do you stop somebody from going and visiting them? Are you willing to wrap their tribal areas around so with, with forces to keep someone from coming in? And are you willing to detain or shoot somebody who's said, I'm going to go talk to those folks? And that's a bit different than just having a policy where you say, we're not going to. It's like the rare rhino policy of trying to protect and poaching. It's, it's significantly more complicated when there, there's conflicting parties. So you're, you're on the line of simulation theory, I would imagine. No, I, I, my usual philosophy on the simulation hypothesis is that the question isn't whether or not we live in a simulation, but whether or not it matters. Now, I, I tend to think that um, the rules for simulation will likely be self-consistent. You would have physical laws in that simulation that you would expect the simulation to tend to follow, because otherwise it kind of gives away the game. And uh, in our own universe, the rules we observe, whether this is the real universe or not, we probably should be assuming that many of our assumptions about how likely life is to evolve to begin with and to get to intelligence and technology are probably just a lot uh, less probable than we think they are. 
and that would be the the largest order of magnitude difference in terms of what the percentages would be and the largest uncertainty because yeah. the, other th- the other things are much simpler with drake's equation you've got the astronomical terms and you've got the biological terms and you've got the uh psychological sociological terms we know the astronomical ones pretty well we we guess them to within order of magnitude pretty much from the get-go the problem we've been nailing those down and refining them but that's that's the problem is those are like one in ten type of odds they are you know Maybe you'd have to sort through 100 systems at worst to find one that was suitable uh, astronomically for life. And that makes us look at the other terms in Drake's equation, the ones that deal with uh, just general odds of evolution and uh, societies. And you tend to think, well, if those are 1 in 10, then these should be two. But for all we know, the odds of life arising in the first place might be one in a quintillion. You know, that almost both spin brain odds. Probably not, but that could be it. We assume evolution is this pathway to intelligence and from intelligence to technology. But we don't really have any evidence to back that claim up. And indeed, a lot of biologists think that's, that's not good reasoning at all, that you know, intelligence is a very bizarre trait to evolve and, and often counterproductive. And look at us. We discovered fire a million years ago. It was only 10,000 years ago. We got around to using it for more than cooking food. Pottery, metalworking, that's all recent. So maybe it's one of those things where there are millions of civilizations of the galaxy that are hanging around at the caveman level. Uh, maybe it's one of those things where on most planets are fungus and algae and nothing more complex. We don't know yet, but odds are pretty good that's where the filter is actually at. Yeah, much, much earlier. I mean, if you're looking at survival, humanity was much luckier than, a, than a, a lion, for instance, and being able to survive. We had a lot of things happen that allowed us to survive that are not guaranteed. Indeed, and in many ways, of the problem you have that is so much of our technology and culture comes around us trying to fix or deal with things that we're actually not very good at. You know, we don't have claws. We don't really have good fall for climates. That kind of forces us towards technology. But if we were just a little bit less survivable, we probably wouldn't be the apex species now. And if we were a little bit more survivable, we probably wouldn't have invented a lot of that stuff. Enjoying this so far? I know I am. Isaac's incredibly interesting, and we'd love to get him back on the show. If you leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to podcasts, that helps us with keeping our team motivated and also reaching out to incredible guests like Isaac to have on the program and to have again and again. We would love to get Isaac back on. If you guys go to fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Android, you can go to this show, subscribe, leave a review, and that'll do a lot for helping us to grow further our mission and get great guests. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting paradox. How do you choose topics to focus on? You've done quite quite a lot. You know, there are so many ways we come up with episodes. Early on, I would just generally, I did a topic and I felt like it wasn't complete, so I would do more. And later, I started asking the audience, what topics do you think we should cover? We do polls. Sometimes I ask some of the folks who volunteer to help out on the channel what they want to do. And sometimes an episode just comes to me. I'll be reading a comment and somebody be like, hey, let's do an episode on colonizing the oceans. I'll say, that, that sounds so cool. We've got to do an episode on that. So how would how would colonizing the oceans work and how does that how does that impact looking forward for worlds that potentially are only oceans? Oh, actually, I probably shouldn't have used that one because that was the one that most recently came to mind and we haven't written the draft script for that up yet. We're still in research phase. At the moment, though, what we'd probably be wanting to do, you know, the Earth is a quarter land and most of that land is not good land. It's mountains, poles, things like that. The oceans are most of the space we have. And, you know, that's a lot of room to expand, lots of sunlight for plants to grow, but they don't grow in the deep ocean because there's, there's not much nutrient. So you probably see a lot of floating cities that were actually artificial reefs of themselves, carrying around the soil and nutrients that plants need to grow. And they might tether themselves, but, you know, to the bottom of the ocean, but they probably have engines to be able to move out of the way of a storm. Then you could see them deep down too. Now, there's lots of reasons to do floating islands. I'm a little less sure about colonizing deep or down, and that's, that's one of those topics I'll be exploring myself in the next month or two. 
in order to look at it more in the episode. We have looked at a little bit more for places like Europa or rogue plants deep out in the outer solar system. But as for Earth itself, you know, we talk about colonizing the moon or Mars. Both of those are harder to colonize than Antarctica. But for the most part, we really haven't colonized Antarctica yet. So expanding outward a little bit, let's talk a little bit more about becoming interplanetary, what some timelines are, what some steps we need to do to get there, and what are your overall thoughts? You know, I, I often follow the NSS roadmap, the National Space Society's roadmap for the, some of the basic milestones they use, but the ones we tend to use on the channel usually don't give dates in terms of AD, but more like 20 years after we figure this piece out. For instance, if we got a compact fusion drive, you know, we don't even have fusion yet, but if we got a compact fusion drive, within a decade, you would be able to send people pretty cheaply to other planets. Alternatively, if we got a warm temperature superconductor, that lets you do things like orbital rings or lobstrom loops, uh, an active support, you know, very high towers almost right away. And uh, it's one of those we have to wait till the technology is closely on the horizon before you can really give timelines for it. Now, I mean, ever since Apollo, we've always had this, well, one of these days we're going to get up there. But in the last 10 years, I think we've actually hit that snowball point where we're going to start seeing a lot more stuff developed up there. So it is, it is finally here, that snowball point where there's going to be so much more in space, but it's still going to be fairly slow. I think we'll, we will start actually seeing for-profit industry in space in the next 20 years. Do you think the only thing that would accelerate that would be potential cata- cataclysm? No, you know, actually, I, I, I was always looking at, I always say, what industries in space could actually be enough revenue that they would justify a major space program. And only relatively recently did I head on power satellites as the one. We're trying to argue with, with newer power satellites, saying things down as microwaves. The advantages is launch costs are dropping, so we can actually start putting them up there for less than the cost of the meals to make them. That is a $10 trillion a year sector of the global economy. We talk about something like manufacturing things in ZOG or you know maybe filming movies up there. That could be a lot of money. But that's still billions. The energy sector is huge. It is a massive chunk of our economy, and it's one of our biggest bottlenecks. So if you can produce energy up in space and beam it down to Earth safely, which it looks like we will be able to do, once that hits that point where it's profitable, just viable, because that's completely renewable, because there's no fossil fuels involved or spent nuclear items, or even any toxic materials from the solar panels in space themselves for like a, a trash dump, that gives you a power source that opens up that bottleneck. And you can beam down so much power, and it's such a huge sector of the economy, that at that point, I think you could actually justify keeping up, you know, many hundreds of billions of dollars worth of assets in space, as opposed to, uh, you know, right now we send up millions of dollars worth of stuff, it costs us billions for fuel, you know, and rocketry. Yeah, that would be very interesting. So the idea would be to beam down, to beam down energy, a la wireless charging. The problem, one of the problems I would see is human, human testosterone and sperm levels are going way down just from a lot of the radio waves that are, and a lot of the products that we're consuming every day. I wonder how that would have an impact on, on society. Do we become a purely, a purely female and uh, egg-driven IVF society? Oh my, well, that's, that's uh, um, you know, we talk about this sometime with generation ships, if you should send all female crews. There are debatable effects of uh, radiation, especially non-ionizing radiation on human fertility rates or cancers. And uh, that is one of those things that we obviously want to study a lot. But it really wouldn't be ever necessary to to switch over to a, a non-gendered or non-reproductive system with that because you could take samples of people's sperm, keep them on ice, and just implant them when they want to have a kid. And we are already shifting towards birth control systems that make pregnancy, typically speaking, a planned event rather than just on accident. And so I don't really see there being a need. You know, that's one of those things where you can fight a, a potential problem with technology. We 
should be able to switch over to a society within probably even the next 20 or 30 years where pregnancy is one of those things that happens only when both parties want it to happen and never on accident. And uh, there could be some concerns that a lot of people would put off having families uh, later and thus get population drops. But we're also seeing a lot of uh, technology towards potential life extension uh, and, and vital life extension too, not just letting people live longer as old people, but basically just aging slower. And if you have both those technologies come into play, then then people could wait till they were 50 to have a family and have their career nice and started up. And just in general, I, I tend to feel that these are examples of problems where our technology gives us new problems, but also gives us the pathway to solutions to them. That's how technology always works. New problems and typically better problems. Not always. Oh, yeah. Can't be afraid to open Pandora's box. And so far, every time we've opened it, it's it's given us a bit of a jolt, but a jolt, but uh, it has it's jolted us a few times too. We've always managed to solve our problems and come out better for it. What uh, what are some of the biggest problems that you see right now based off of your research and your, your interest? Hmm. In terms of localized problems, of course, we got the climatological ones and the energy one is, is a huge one because that's such a, such a draw on us, uh, is that bottleneck for energy, how much we can get, how quickly we can get it, how cheaply we can get it, and uh, is it damaging us while we get it? Uh, so I, I generally tend to see energy as the biggest single problem that we're facing, but uh, there are so many of them. We have got privacy and cryptolog- uh, cryptography issues for people. It, can you use your stuff online safely and can you keep things private at all? And uh, that, I think, is one of those more existential things where a civilization will roll on regardless, but is it the civilization that we want? So I would probably say energy and personal privacy are, are the two big ones that we've got to deal with in the next 50 years. Personal privacy and control. You've built your, you've built your channel and empire on YouTube who could technically take it away overnight. Are you terrified? Of them, no. We got all the episodes saved up. We could move them over like Vimeo or something. Uh, most of the channel support does not come from YouTube for that reason. In, in terms of ad revenue, we get mostly from donations or sponsorships, which buffers us against anything they do. Now, YouTube's got a, a, a somewhat bad reputation, which is not entirely unjustified, but I, I'm not really worried about them knocking any channels off, at least not mine. At the same time, yeah, I think, uh, you know, not to speak out against monopolies in general, because sometimes they can be useful, but uh, there's kind of a de facto monopoly there, and I generally tend to feel that's not good in the long term, that there should be some more competition in there. There definitely should be. That's a, that's an entirely different rabbit hole, and I want to jump more into the, the rabbit hole, wormhole side of, of space. So as we, as we do start to explore more outwards, how do you see humanity and civilization going? You've talked a lot about different types of structures, about different places to live and about different ways that humanity can evolve for those places. What do you see as some of the most likely scenarios? I would tend to think the most likely, just from my best guesstimate of how technology will roll out, is that over the course of the next century, we will visit Mars and Poppy Venus and some other places too with manned expeditions, but we'll be building up our infrastructure in orbit, low orbit, high orbit, and on the moon. And I think that while we will probably set up our first permanent base on Mars for anywhere, I mean on the moon, but then on Mars for anywhere else, I suspect the asteroid belt is more the place we're going to want to be at. And I, I don't see us trying to terraform Mars much. You know, terraforming, and people think of it as, oh, we can take this planet and make it livable. This is a process that is inherently destructive. I mean, seriously, mountain-changing type of uh, procedures that take centuries to t- take place. Whereas, while it sounds strange, building your own habitats, building giant orbital habitats like an O'Neill cylinder, might turn out to be much cheaper than trying to terraform an equal amount of space. And then, most importantly, you've got the entire planet of Mars, and you have to terraform that entire planet to make it livable. Something like an O'Neill cylinder, it's just an island in space you build and expand or add another one as need requires, and you can perfectly tailor it. You know, you can get the same gravity, the same weather, temperature, lighting, etc. And just knowing people, 
I feel that most of us would be much more comfortable uh, in an environment that we could completely escape to our needs as opposed to kind of having whatever the local planet forced on us. So do you think with that, there's terraforming, but then there's also genetic engineering? Bioforming, yes. Yeah, bio, bioforming. That's, that's the correct term. Where, where do you see that? I know with the technology, we obviously are still a ways off, but we're kind of reaching that inflection point, so to speak, with genetic engineering. Uh, to some degree, the pathways that you choose just depend on what technology you get forced. If we get much better with genetics before we get better with something like fusion, then we are very likely to go the bioformula route. Uh, one thing I always stress, of course, is that we're not required to do one or the other. You can do all of these at once. And I do tend to feel that the, the future of humanity is a higher divergence and diversity of the various pathways that we choose. So I think some people would choose to live on Mars with its alien environment as opposed to a nice orbital habitat that might be cheaper and nicer. Bioforming, though, is a bit of an issue because it's often would require very extreme adaptations. And it's same with cybernetics. And we, I would usually consider any of these what we don't call transhuman paths to be more or less same. Whether you're doing it with robots or with genetics, there's a very great similarity. A cyborg and a genetically engineered human are still kind of in many ways the same thing. And uh, in many cases, you are going to have to go that pathway if you want to adapt somebody. You can't really tinker with someone's genetics to let them live on Mars. You might be able to get a microbe to do that, but not a human. However, you could cybernetically enhance them so they could walk around. They don't need uh, oxygen, for instance. So they don't need to worry about pressure. You know, those are things that will be more the cybernetic route. But there's a lot of interchangeability between those two. And I do think a lot of people will go that route. I'm just not sure they will do it uh, as a normal thing. I suspect that will tend to be a smaller percentage of the population. Who loves online training at their organization? Just about no one. It's a hassle to create and distribute, and often tedious to take. And that's because you had to cobble it together. Authoring apps, learning management systems, and uneditable third-party content that looks like it's from the 90s. And none of these play nicely together. Enter Rise.com, the online training system employees love. Rise.com, sponsor for today's episode, is an all-in-one system that makes online training easy to create, enjoyable to take, and simple to manage. Not only can you create, distribute, and analyze online training easy, in Rise.com. You can also get tons of training content that's beautiful and well-researched, enjoyable for learners, and awesome for everyone. And for the first time ever, you can edit, customize, and mix pre-built content with your own. If you're ready to disrupt the way your company trains employees, start your 30-day risk-free trial today at Rise.com disruptors. That's R-I-S-E dot com slash disruptors. D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S. Perfect. And just in time for COVID when it's hard to see each other and online training is a must. Rise.com slash disruptors for more details and your 30-day risk-free trial. What about in terms of the implications of that as people do start to edit themselves, change themselves, enhance themselves in different ways and how that affects us also living different places. It really, it really complicates having a civilization, so to speak. Oh, sure. And, and to a degree, you have to think about what do we mean by civilization? You know, this planet has an awful lot of different civilizations on it, but we do tend to refer to it as our civilization. And I think that you tend to see that too. You would see differences, but I, I think, you know, you see difference between Mars and Earth's population, but, you know, we shouldn't be too homogenous about these things. Odds are you'd have civilizations on Mars that differed from each other more than they did from several civilizations that existed on Earth or Venus. And same as on, on, say, North America or South America, you have countries that differ much more from each other than they might uh, some country in Africa or Europe. And, uh, I would say the biggest threat that you have going on with that, though, is that a lot of people might feel obliged to embrace uh, genetic engineering or cybernetics because you've got that issue of 
well, we went and got my kid enhanced, so they're smarter now and they're more athletic. And you don't have to. No one's going to force you. But if you want your kid to be a success, you probably better give them that that uh, that old you know bump up. And I think that could be one of those problems because a lot of people say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I don't want you to either because that puts me at an unfair disadvantage. And then you have the other people arguing very rightly back that it's them, their body or their child, and they certainly have the right to give them an advantage. So I, I think that's probably going to be one of those big arguments we have in the near future along with you know privacy that is going to be a a debate for the 24th century. And we probably can't kick that road, can down the road too much. Is that anything you could stop though? I mean, it will just become, it'll just become black market if there is that much of an advantage to be gained. Eventually it'll become black market and then it'll have to be legalized. Some of it could be black market, but the thing is something like that's pretty detectable. I mean, if, if someone can see in a different range of frequencies, and, and of course the thing about black market is that you have to hide that you're using it. And a lot of people who might want to make use of something like that will decide it's, it's one step too far. I was thinking, though, it, it, you know, it's really more the ethics issue. You can you can never ban something like that completely. In Star Trek, in uh, Deep Space Nine, in particular, they had uh, Dr. Julian Bashir. Uh, he turned out to be genetically enhanced, and he wasn't allowed to be in Starfleet because of that. And that episode gives the, the kind of the dual impression that, on the one hand, it's a bad thing, and on the other hand, he shouldn't be blamed for his parents dead. And I think that is one of those arguments uh, that we're going to have to have um, is whether or not that's actually true. Is it right to hold it against somebody who's gotten these implants? Say someone got on the black market and it's illegal, and they give it to their kid. Do we have any right to give that child limitations because they've been engineered illegally? They didn't choose to do it, right? At the same time, they are still disadvantaging people. So as one of those examples where I say on the channel, we can sometimes guess what the future will be like, but I don't have any solutions on that one. It's quite the ethical dilemma. It's hard to punish people for being better than you. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, that, there is a history of doing that sometimes. So. There, there is a history of doing that. Um, what, uh, what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence, where we're headed, and possible, possible implications? Um, it's a bit of a strange one. Is I, I tend to feel that we are going to get more artificial intelligence in the next 10 to 20 years, but I suspect progress on that will actually start to slow down. You know, 20 years ago, people were saying, this is something we should absolutely be looking at. We, we will obey the dangers, but we need a lot more research on it. Now you see more and more people out of that field, now that science, saying, well, let's slow down and be more careful. Let's start having these conversations now. In the past, it was a sci-fi danger. We knew about it. We knew we had to deal with it one day. Now it's getting to the point where we actually have to start thinking about it more seriously. And I think in the next 10 or 20 years, it's going to get to the point where we have to really seriously think about it because there are so many ethical, not to mention genuine uh, dangers to humanity that, that can be attached with artificial intelligence. And it's just my opinion that that will probably see it slow down a lot. Most of the researchers are not going to want to do that uh, in isolation, in, you know, without support or be illegal at it. And I think most governments will regulate the uh, ability to research that field, you know, start putting security into place or limitations in it. In the long term, though, I do think it is a bit of an inevitability that we would see uh, intelligence that wasn't born as humans are. And that could be everything from a human mind that was uploaded to a computer and is still basically human, but is an artificial intelligence, to something like an uplifted cat or dog that had human-level intelligence, or just a machine that wasn't born as a human and was grown from scratch or that was uh, intelligent, or even more intelligent than a it's human. It's hard when you have, a, when you have a, a weapons of mass destruction type race, though, where one side getting an advantage can mean the doom of the other side. It's hard, it's hard not to be an arms race. Sure. And we often point to nuclear weapons on that, but a better example isn't nuclear weapons. It would be biological or chemical warfare, particularly biological warfare. Most of the superpowers who had the industrial might for that focused almost all of their research on defenses against biological weapons, not creating them. And that is a good example where something could be a weapon of mass destruction, and people do not have a race for it. They do not want to deploy these. They do, you know, most countries that have nukes do not want to use biological weapons or keep them because they are not precise. Now, a nuclear weapon isn't that precise, but 
if you go to hit a nuke on a city, you know where it's landing, you know what it's doing. You release a virus, and it's as likely to kill your own people or neutrals. And the kind of the same applies for an artificial intelligence. All fears about that don't come from the advantages it gives a country. It comes from the fears of what it's going to do if it goes rogue. And, uh, you know, especially in this era of computer viruses, people already know what a danger that can be. I can't see a lot of governments deciding to say, well, we have to have this first or we're going to lose. I think they'll be more likely to go the biological weapons route where they say, well, we definitely need to look into this, but we need to control it. We've got other options. And you could see people saying, as we do with uh, with nukes, a lot of countries don't keep biological weapons. So they'll say, if you use biological weapons on that, we will apply with a nuclear weapon. We're not going to try to counter virus you. You could see the same with AI. If a country says, we're going to do this research, uh, people could point bombs at them and say, well, if you do and it gets out of hand, we'll nuke in you. You know, that's how it is. And whether or not that will be effective is hard to say, but I, I do think that's the pathway that's more likely to take place. I think it's more like cybersecurity and hacking, though. There, there's so much that's gets put into defense, but it's so much easier to play offense. It is. But then, I mean, that's the case for a lot of weapons, too, is uh, it's almost always better to be on the offensive. But unless you actually want to be on the offensive, it can be an issue. Right now, the cyber uh, security, cyber attacks thing is still relatively new and kind of difficult for people to do in an organized fashion at the government level. As that changes, a country's going to have to worry about any time it gets ID'd or even considered to be the, uh, you don't have to know that it was definitely them to apply with your own cohort attack. And uh, in the end, any weapon that can do more damage than it is easy to defend against, you need a lot more people to defend or repair than it takes to deploy it, puts people in that Mexican standoff situation we have with weapons of mass destruction in general. And I think you tend to see the same kind of policies in place. We don't know for sure it was you. We can't prove it in a court of law. But just so you know, if all stuff starts going down, yours probably will too. And that is, you know, the option people have available to them on that. And I think that is the route that we're probably going to see more of in the future. The new classic Mexican standoff. What technologies are are you most excited about today in terms of what you've looked into the past and then what you're seeing today? Just for this decade, I'd say that we're going to remember this decade mostly for metamaterials. Uh, and last decade, probably more for uh, things like graphene in terms of where they got started on going to head. Metamaterials have so many options in them that would seem to not so much break normal physics as get us around a lot of limitations we've had with a lot of electronics in the past. And that's one of those things where I think history will remember this decade for metamaterials, but most of us will not personally do so. I mean, we're kind of in the Marconi era of that right now. But uh, graphene uh, capacitors, supercapacitors, is going to be a very big one that we should probably have developed you know, into commercial play in the relatively near future now. We can bulk produce graphene for a, a reasonable cost. And of course, computers, always something with computers. But uh, I feel in the terms of physical technologies, the ones that really be looking at are superconductors, metamaterials, and uh, I'm not sure how you classify uh, graphene, but the super tensile ones are the ones that are super conductive of thermal energy too. So you think we're going to move more towards uh, more towards a physical revolution, so to speak, in terms of our goods and physical chemistry? Build. I think is going to be a very big factor in the near future. This is the digital age, though, and nothing's going to change that. But this is an area, area right now where I say um, material science is going to be very large. And it's interesting trying to trying to fuse that together with the existing ecosystem. A lot of a lot of money, a lot of focus currently is put into easier money tasks, so software artificial intelligence, they're not necessarily easy money, but it's obvious money, e-commerce, things things that are dealing much more directly with direct impact. How do you see the role of investors, entrepreneurs, creators, scientists in pushing forward positive technology? The biggest one, of course, is getting the funding they are to the place that actually need it and will use it effectively. And that's that's so much easier said than done. We, we often hear you know, things like NASA or other things is like, well, we should invest more in research. Uh, unfortunately, beyond the money not really being there or the interest not really being there, many times this kind of approach that amounts to let's throw money at it 
is not just less productive where you get diminished returns, but can sometimes even be counterproductive because you have people rush into a field for glamour or wealth who are supposed to afford a pure research. I don't think that happens too much with things as is, but we are pretty tight with our budgets on research. Venture capital, of course, is, is remains a big factor in that. Government research funding, big factor for that. But I think it's, it's one of those things where I think we're going to see a lot more crowdsourcing, strangely enough, of a lot of, of pure research. To a degree, we kind of already do that with charitable foundations. Uh, a foundation raises money for, uh, for something and gives away to this or that research project. But I think we'll see more crowdfunding. I think we'll see a lot more people saying, I want to mount an archaeological expedition to uh, this island in the Mediterranean that's underexplored, and I want to raise funds for that. And we can go to the universities or the government or to this charitable foundation, but we've decided to crowdsource it. And we are going to film things while we do it, and we'll give you regular updates. And uh, you know, for a $2 a month um, subscription, you will help us support this trip. And I don't think we'll replace the classic approaches, but I do think we're going to see a big boom in crowdsourcing as, uh, as time goes on. And solo content creators using Patreon or something similar? Oh, yeah. No, uh, Patreon's the major source of funding for my own channel, and uh, it's a big one for a lot of other ones. And uh, that's, that's very new, but it's very effective. It's a very good way to raise funds directly with people. And that is an example where... You know, people are happy to support something, but they need to feel secure. They need to know that their money is going to be used properly, their information is not getting sent all over the place. So places like uh, Kickstarter or Patreon that basically just put the mechanism in place have really helped with that. Because you, you could always send people a check in the mail for something. But this is a secure way of doing it that's easy and safe. And that's, that's the big thing with crowdsourcing is that people are going to have to feel like there is a safety element. Speaking of safety element, how close are we, in your opinion, or are we moving towards post-scarcity UBI, something similar where we have a society that's less driven by pure capitalism and the need for a job. Well, I think where post-scarcity is concerned, it all depends on how you define it. Technically, in a finite universe, you can never truly have a post-scarcity existence. And so we, we put together terms that, you know, a, a kind of a check sheet of what you need to qualify as what people really mean by post-scarcity, which is kind of utopianistic and um, utopian. And I think that we are getting very close to that, but I, I would actually go as far as say we've already gotten there, except that we do have that energy bottleneck. As long as you can't constantly fuel your stuff or that there's a limitation on how much you can fuel, then you can't really become post-scarcity. At the same time, robotics and automation are the other big factor on that. If you have either of those two, you are arguably pushed into a post-scarcity existence, probably a little bit more limited than the Star Trek fast replicator approach, but you're basically there. And I would say most Western countries, if it wasn't for that specific energy bottleneck and pollution concern, would probably already qualify as post-scarcity. Interesting. I think we are definitely moving towards that, but to become a intergalactic or interplanetary species, is it possible with government and capitalism, with multiple governments? Could make the system work with anything. You could probably operate a country using a Ouija board. Uh, if there's enough wealth there, enough prosperity there, and it's easy enough to produce it, then all that's required is that the citizens feel comfortable with the system and like it. So if it's one of those ones where they randomly select 10 people to rule each year from a hat, and they decide all decisions where it's a 60-40 or less split by a coin flip, that can work if people feel confident in it. And I think in the future that you would just see, you know, you wouldn't see a capitalist society or a communist society. You'd see both. Not, you know, in the same places or different locations, maybe Mars is capitalist and Venus is communist. Maybe this asteroid right next to you is called Marksville and the one next to it is uh, Galt's Gorge. And, you know, that's the thing is this planet right now isn't capitalist or communist. It's uh, got everything, you know, and I think that we'd see more of that. 
I would hope that would see a lot more democracy because I'm a very big fan of that. But even then, maybe not. Maybe some colonies will be classic aristocracies or kingdoms. Maybe some will be theocracies or autocracies or plutocracies or there are, I think, around 100ocracies. And I would be not surprised if they all had at least one or two walking examples in the future. And potentially new things we haven't thought of yet. I do like, I do like reinventing democracy a bit. The, the coin flip and random people seem, seem to be better than what we have well, currently. We, we do do the uh, coin flip. Actually, it's, uh, before I came here, I finished out a meeting where I got appointed as the chairman of a local board of elections. And we do have to decide things by coin flip occasionally if elections close. Although some places they do that with a uh, draw of a call. If it's a tie, you got to have a random factor and we use a coin. But there is room for decisions like that. And say, if you want to make sure you're not predictable with a system, you can always set up a random factor that will decide things when they're close. Not time, but close. You say, this election's within 1%, so instead of being a recount, we are going to do a coin flip, you know? So it doesn't have to be exactly tied. And I could see somebody using a system like that where, you know, every issue where it's, it's close, we decide it randomly because that way people feel like even though they lost by 1%, they still had a, you know, they still represent about the same number of people as the others did. And that helps to avoid some of the tyranny of the majority issue or tyranny of the minority issue in the divorce uh, that you have pop up with these systems sometimes. And the winner-take-all winner dynamic. What are, what are some common myths in, uh, in the fields of work that you're most focused on? Uh, the biggest one, of course, is, uh, I, mean, I hesitate to say that it's a myth, but is the idea that uh, everyone's going to live on uh, different planets in the future when they live out in the galaxy. So we usually are more likely to, uh, to end up building those into what we generally refer to as a Dyson swarm. The other two ones are that we will have fast and light travel, and we have to have that to get out to the colony, you know, to colonize things. And I say, with fast and light travel, I don't see in the codes, but my attitude is if we get it, great, we'll take advantage of it. But if it's not there, if it's not there, if it turns out to be something that's impossible, we still can go ahead and colonize the galaxy. We can colonize other planets. And so... Great. If we get it, wonderful. Same for aliens. If we meet aliens out there, that's great. I'd love to meet some aliens. They're presumably not that hostile or we'd already been killed off. But I don't think that they're going to be out there. And I don't think we'll find a lot of space anomalies out there to enjoy the Star Trek exploration thing. And the philosophy I take is, even though these things from science fiction probably aren't going to be there, it's still something we want to do. It's still something that we can do. And it's still something that we, we, we should absolutely embrace and go forward with. And science fiction is one of the best ways to have creative ideas. Can you break down, can you break down a Dyson sphere quickly? Okay. Um, well, there's the Dyson sphere and there's the Dyson swarm, although the, the sphere was originally the swarm itself. The Dyson sphere is usually represented in fiction by basically a giant inverted planet. It's a shell of outer star where it's just all land area and you are, you are taking advantage of that. And the idea there is that Earth only gets about one billionth of the light the sun gives off. Most of it goes to waste. If you had all the other planets combined, you're still not even, even like Jupiter, you're still not even taking up a millionth of the energy of the solar system uh, the sun puts out. So you build a giant inverted sphere around, around the sun to take that light in. And that's the conceptual example. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of sci-fi writers thought that was the actual example. That particular one does not work for gravity reasons. You'd all fall into the sun and it would drift around. But we have something called a Dyson Swarm, which is the original concept. And that's where you just make a big cloud of artificial habitats and power satellites around a star to take advantage of all of its energy. Interesting. And... Would you say, what would you say is the most likely habitat for humanity going forward? Would you say it is a Dyson swarm? Would you say, let's say it's a life tree? What would you go with? Oh, in many ways, the, the Dyson swarm should be thought of more like a metropolis or, a, you know, the Atlantic seaboard. It's not really a structure so much as it's a, a collection. I think the one that people would tend to live in would be the O'Neill Cylinder. Possibly not that exact size, but think of a big cannon space and you live on the inside of it and it spins around with artificial lighting inside uh, and artificial land. And um, you can build those to various sizes depending on how, how big you want it and how big your material allows. 
And usually you'd be start saying you don't want to go much bigger than something about the size of uh, Long Island. There's no real need to when you can just build another one and it starts putting stresses on the materials that, that would make it very difficult to, to make sure it was safe. But you can potentially build those gigantically huge. There's an example called the McKendree Cylinder using graphene that is basically on par with a continent. But the O'Neill Cylinder, again, more like a large island. And you'd have tons of these. And they surprisingly, people say, well, wouldn't they all crash into each other? But the thing people forget is that you know, the value of space that we call the habitable zone of the solar system is huge. Even if you had a billion times the population of Earth living on all these things, trillions of them, most of them would still be hundreds of kilometers away from each other. Uh, so very, very thinly spread out. And so there's no real problems with collisions or anything like that. And then you would have some type of propulsion unit so you could move. Absolutely, them. yeah. Uh, what you'd probably have most commonly, though, strangely enough, would be um, they likely have lasers on board to help push ships around or vaporize debris. But they probably have swarms of like you know, 10 or 20 of them where they are connected together with a tether. And they could actually just pull on that tether. You could travel around that tether. These would be ones that were closer together. And uh, you could use that for travel, for high-speed communication as opposed to signaling. And you could also yank on that because, again, you have inertia in space where you don't have gravity. You could yank on that to move one of the stations if you needed to. If you yank on it, it's hard to stop it from moving. That yeah, is, exactly. That's one problem. <laughs> that's one problem. Physics professor always push that. You can't push it with a rope. But the, the thing, of course, is the other cylinder has been yanked too. So, so the whole structure would have maintained its momentum. So they'd still be on the same order path. But yes, you would need to counter yank on to prevent it from slamming into a report onto it. God, that would be sucky. We'd make incredible technology and end up crashing. Oh, yeah. Well, but they no. probably would just bounce off each other. They're quite stoic. <laughs> Fair. Touche. Touche. It's like dropping a can of beer unless it's too pressurized. So what, uh, if you had unlimited funding, what technologies or what problems would you focus on? Oh, Personally, I, I would definitely focus on the material science of, of very strong materials and uh, superconductors, uh, along with fusion. To me, those are the ones that I most want to see get tackled because I'd love to see more automation to make it so we didn't have to work as much. But I'm happy with people still having something to do to work on. I would want us to be able to build these things more than anything else. So the launch systems uh, and the energy systems to me are the most important part. What would you give fusion in terms of a uh, percentage probability that it's doable? Oh, I mean, it's definitely doable. Uh, the sun does it. And of course, if people forget this, we invented controlled fusion about 60 years ago. You can set off a nuclear bomb inside a very large water reactor and, uh, and tap that for energy. It's just nobody really wants to build something like that because that's, that's quite large. You know, you want to hollow out a hole in the ground uh, 10 miles across, fill it with water, seal it off with lead so it can't leak out, and then detonate nukes in it with a turbine on top. That's fusion. That does work. We want something more compact than that. And every time we've made steps towards it, we've not, you know, we've made progress. People forget that. We've made tons of progress on fusion. The problem is we keep coming up with little tiny extra problems we didn't know about. And we're getting closer, but the horizons moved a little bit further back on us each time. And they would say it's the future of 20 years from now, but I would tell say that's probably about right now. I'd say probably more like 20, 30 years where we have something that can do it. And maybe 50 to 100 years where we actually see that completely replace our power grid. But of course, it could turn out that that's not doable. One problem with fusion is it is the sort of thing that is always done best at a large scale. And if it turns out that the absolute minimum you can make one of these things is a mile across, uh, you know, some giant tokamak that takes the size of a city, you might say, screw, we've got, a, we've got an entire sun doing fusion. We'll just use, again, power satellites for that. But we'll have to wait and see on that. I personally am very optimistic about fusion for the 24th century. Okay, interesting. That said, I imagine most people that were involved with fusion 20 years ago probably said it was 20 to 30 years off. No, most of them actually, this is, uh, I actually, I, I blame General Atomics on this one. We discovered how to make nuclear power plants and how to make nuclear bombs all about the same time, the original A-bombs. And it wasn't that long if we understood radioactivity. So when we had the H-bomb invented. They're like, well, we've got the H-bomb now, fusion. 
should be right around the corner, a generation most, 20 years will have fusion. And that was the mistake there. Almost nobody said that afterwards. We explored and like, wow, this is going to take a while. But every so often, someone will come out and say it. And the media always latched onto it and reported it. So we've had 60 years now where people always say it's 20 years away. But it wasn't the scientific community actually saying that. That, that was just something General Thomas said back in the day when that made sense. You know, if we'd gotten the, you know, the uh, A-bomb and fission power plants working together so quickly, surely if we got the H-bomb, we'd have fusion soon. Generally speaking, since then, the consensus science has been, this is still a ways off. And now a lot of them are coming out and saying, yes, there's going to be 20 years. And there's a lot of them saying that, not just a couple of people kind of talking out the side of their mouth. How would you redesign education for the 21st century? Um, you know, personally, as a pet project, I'm very fond of hands-on teaching apprenticeships. You know, a lot of people say, well, I've got life experience and you've got book experience. They say, well, if you're doing it properly, you need both. You need your hands-on things and work on them, get experience. But you also benefit from that, that book-centered or learning-centered thing where those books were written by experts of that topic. And I, I would like to see a lot more of that. I'd like to start seeing kids, as soon as they're old enough that we feel safe, having them, you know, away from a school, you know, working at, say, the local garage helping out with calls or down at the hospital running errands, candy stripe and whatever. I, I am a very big fan of apprenticeship. I feel like if you spent uh, Tuesday and Thursday, we're going to have you in the classroom, but Monday and Friday, you're going to be apprenticing at your main skill and Wednesday, your secondary skill. You got to have two of those so that if the main skill goes away, you turn out to hate it, you still got another skill you developed. I would like to see that more as the direction we take uh, education. In terms of the scientific or technological angle, I think we're going to see a lot more interactive software and video type formats like what we see on YouTube develop. And I think that ideally we'll start having systems that are able to tailor themselves to the individual at the time. So the computer looks at you and says, well, Bobby's not really paying attention to the sentence. We were looking at his eyeballs while he read the sentence and he kind of zoned out. So we are going to repeat this sentence again, changed around a little bit. You know? so, okay, there it clicked. Now next sentence, you know, so that everybody learns at their own rate. And then we see a lot more, you know, instead of the classroom, it's the individual who's just in a classroom environment so they can keep an eye on, on them, make sure they're not uh, running off the playground. And I think that we will see a lot more interactive technology that is able to actually tell when a student is learning uh, or paying attention to the very least and can then retailer the information a little bit to show it to them better. You know, it knows right as they take the test, this person missed that question when they've just finished writing down the answer and it can flag it and say it's wrong. This is, you got the wrong answer. You're not waiting a week till they've forgotten what the question was. It says, right, then you're wrong. And then we gives them another question that is very similar after explaining what they did wrong and see if they can correct it on the spot. And I think in that way, we can seriously compress the amount of learning that people do so they are, are picking up faster and better. I would think so and would hope so. Some of the challenges I would think is I've seen studies that show that engagement and learning drops significantly when dealing with recorded content. So any, anything, that, anything that's not live with live interaction. So the best is with a teacher or one-on-one, then a class, then doing a virtual class, but there's actually a teacher there. And then recorded content being far and away, far and away the worst. You're always kind of tailing these around first, what's most effective and second, what's most economically effective. And I'm sure that a history teacher talking about World War II is much more effective one-on-one than he is with a classroom of 300 and more effective with a classroom of 20 than he is with 300. But is he worth uh, 15 times more doing one-on-one for a class of 20 than he is for a group of 30? Is a video for a million people more effective than, uh, than one that's for 10 people? And the easier it gets for us to do customized stuff, the better. And of course, people don't like to talk to machines. They don't like to look at recordings to some degree. But we, we just kind of have to try to find out at every step, what can we actually do economically and viably? And what's most effective and just constantly try to balance those out and improve them for each area. Um, some areas, that's a lot easier. You know, a lot of people would say, well, I'd prefer to have a history teacher. We say, we're going to give you a Game of Thrones style history show. It'll be accurate too. 
think a lot of people enjoy that more than even a one-on-one discussion with someone. So, and those are options we have on the table. We spend—I have no idea how many billions of dollars on education in the United States or the world every year, but I'm sure that there's is quite a lot.、Um, I'm sure there's also quite a lot more than all budgets are for Hollywood. You know, so we do have the option to make some very high-quality material out there.、Um, I remember—I think we said about ten thousand poor students in the United States, just on average. Uh, I don't know how much people spend on Netflix or at the cinema, but I, I know it's less than that. Yeah, it's it's a bit crazy. We may have to take it out of the hands of the government because they're very inefficient at almost everything they do. Well, no, what 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 classes would what classes would you add and what classes would you remove? I would love to see a well. I, mostly, I'd like to add. I, I really don't feel that anybody is getting topics. You, you know, I obviously am a big fan of the maths and sciences, and I feel we don't emphasize them as much as we should. And I would hate to see those get decreased to extend those to other areas. But I tend to feel that we need to spend more time on learning. Now, I don't mean stuffing students into a classroom for eight hours a day instead of six, or knocking up to ten, or including summer. People get saturated. What we have to increasingly shift people to understand is that school is not something you do when you're a kid. Education is something you do for your entire life, and what we need to be giving people is is what they need to be a basic, solid, healthy citizen. And I do think that means you know reading, writing, arithmetic. But I also think that really does have to include things like your civics, your art. You you don't have to be able to understand how to draw, and maybe you have to learn how to do one music, speak one other language. You don't have to be great with them, but you should be exposed to that. So I am a very big fan of you know Aristotle's old you know educate the whole man approach of liberal education. But we do have to be careful with that because often that comes at the expense of so what we call one of the core areas. And nothing scares me more than a student who doesn't know how to balance a checkbook when they get out of high school. You know that's something they need to know. They need to be able to do that basic arithmetic. And、um, I, I do feel though that in many ways. We don't have to extend the amount of money, the amount of schooling, and time we have spent on these guys to get this to happen. We just need to be more effective with the time that we have. And I do feel there is a very strong role for technology in that. I would definitely agree there. I would like to see more of a focus on creative problem solving. I think that's one of the most important skills that goes across all, all mediums. And critical thinking. <laughs> God, and, cri- and critical thinking, and how to identify fake news. And I, I always hate to say is you know saying when you, when you're young you get tired of people saying back in my day and then sometimes you get a little bit older and I'm I'm getting close to forty you find yourself starting to say all those things you probably should say like back in my day or I remember when you were this tall、uh, but I, I you know I think our teachers work very hard for the most part、uh, in a very uphill battle and I think we want to give them everything we can to support them but at the same time we are not getting the job done. Right now, we we throw a lot of money at education, and it's not getting us. It's getting us very diminishing returns. And that doesn't mean the answer is start cutting back on that funding, but we do need to be using it in the most effective manner possible. And that's that is exactly where technology comes in. You know, not trying to replace the teachers with a robot, but you are trying to make sure they have everything they need to get that information to kids' heads in the most effective manner possible. And less information and more solving. I think there's way too. Yes, I mean, you're、yeah. not going to out information、yeah. Google. No, the the first and that is another thing. You say you don't don't memorize stuff. You have to learn. You know, it's more important to know how to search for stuff online than it is to be able to memorize it. But the first thing you have to teach people before you even teach them critical thinking, which is far more important than the individual fact, you have to teach them critical thinking. But first, you have to teach them to love learning. They have to learn to love it. Once you've done that, you don't actually have to do anything else. They, you know, all you have to do is give them a little bit of guidance in what they should be learning. If people get that passion still with them, and it's, it's why their parents are so impossible. I know it's common to you know get on the pants about not doing their job with education, but at the same time, you know, the best teachers in the world can sometimes manage to get a student enthusiastic about knowledge where their parents won't. But most of the time, if the parents didn't get that kid with that enthusiasm for knowledge at a young age, 
it's so much extra work for that for that student and for those teachers to try to overcome that. And it's usually a failing uh, a failing pathway. And worse, even when it does work, it is taking time away from other students who, who already have that. And we don't want to neglect our folks who are enthusiastic about learning just because we're focusing on the ones who aren't. Got to be able to do both, you know? Yeah, you either have a high average or you have a, and a low ceiling or you have a high ceiling and a low average. Yeah. And we want to have a very high average and we want to have kids who have, you know, we, we have to make sure parents have all the tools they need to be able to educate their kids and, and that they themselves appreciate it. That's the most important thing you can do for your kids. Not having a great job that that helps. It's having a genuine enthusiasm for knowledge and learning because they will never be a way that goes wrong on you. That's how it works. I know, I know we're running close to when we need to start shutting things down. Where are, what are the most important resources for you? Where do you look to daily, weekly basis to stay informed and to continue learning? Oh, I mean, I, I keep up, obviously, with a lot of the, uh, I, I will give a shout out to uh, Paul Gilstor's Centauri Dreams, one of the best sites keeping up on um, astrophysics and astronomy, which are obviously big on my channel, along with the Universe Today, uh, Fraser Kane's uh, publication, very big fan of that for a long time. But then, I mean, you, you just have to look through the journals. Sometimes a really good paper will come out. Uh, I can't what's called Dissolving the Fermi Paradox by um, Eric Drexler and Andrew Sandberg that came out recently. It was a great one for that topic. People want to explore the Fermi Paradox more. But, uh, you know, you got to keep up with the articles. You got to keep up with talking. That's the big one. You can read a lot of papers, but the new ideas for the future come from talking to people. You go on like my own forum, for instance, there are hundreds of people discussing these ideas. And I get a lot of my good ideas from them. They are, you know, one paper, great thing, buy and export. Your own head, great thing if you can do it because you trained up. But, um, you know, one head, not as good as a million heads all looking at something and trying to figure out new ideas. A million good heads looking at something. Well, sometimes even some bad heads. I've, I've had some great ideas come out of people who came up with a, a, just a truly ridiculous and stupid idea, but it, it set something off that made you think. You know? that's, uh, that's how it works there. There's convergence of ideas, convergence of technology. Where is the best place for people to find you online, Isaac, and connect? Uh, if you're a Facebook user, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur on Facebook and on YouTube, it's just Isaac Arthur on YouTube because I never renamed the channel. And then uh, we do have uh, a forum on Reddit, on Patreon, and on Discord, so forth. I'm on that fairly often, too. And typically speaking, fortunately, there are not a lot of Isaac Arthurs out there. If you Google Isaac Arthur, you'll, you'll find me. But our main source, of course, is YouTube. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, you definitely need to check it out. Incredibly high-quality videos, very well-produced. Something that any, any type of creator would, uh, would be pretty honored to put out. Thanks for coming, Tom, today, Isaac. Thank you for having me on, man. And the most important thing I forgot, a challenge for our listeners. What would you like them to do, look into, or take action on? Launch systems. Get more involved and interested in things like SpaceX and a lot of the other companies that will get themselves interested in that these days. Launch systems are incredibly interesting. We can't go anywhere until we get out somewhere. So uh, thanks for coming on today, Isaac. Thank you. And thanks, guys. Hopefully this has been fun. Cheers. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.